You're listening to Don't Tell the Easter Bunny, a podcast celebrating the unsung festivities that won't be found on any normal calendar. This show is presented by a mother-son duo who like to keep it safe for work. I'm Bryce, the son. I'm Misty, the mom. And you can reach out to us at Don't Tell the Easter Bunny for Instagram and Facebook, and at Don't Tell the EAS1 for Twitter. Or you can email us at don'ttelltheeasterbunny at gmail.com. No special characters or spaces. Okay, let's hop to it. We're back from Canada. Woohoo! We were up in Quebec and as well as New York for the past couple of weeks. And it was a lot of fun. We had a good time. It was very tiring, though, very active. It was all outdoor activities for the most part. <laughs> we went cliff climbing. We went sea kayaking. We went canoeing. Whitewater rafting. Mm-hmm. Climbing on a pirate ship. Yeah, some mast and ropes and all that. Yeah, we'll see. A lot of hiking. Yeah. So we're very tired. (laughs) Um, But we're glad to get back into looking at new holidays for this upcoming week. So, Mom, do you want to go ahead and say what you got planned? Okay, well... I am going to be doing National drive Through Day, and if you have been following us, I would usually say my second holiday, but we're actually kind of deciding to change up the format here, and we are going to be doing it weekly with two holidays each week that you can celebrate. Hoping to bring you a lot more good facts, um, have a little bit of extra time to share some of those great stories that I usually have to edit out. So, a uh, new format, and uh, I have the one day, National drive Through Day, which is July 24th. And Bryce, you have? I have National Day of the Cowboy, which takes place the fourth Saturday of every July, and this time it is July 27th. So, we're also hoping, coming to you like this, that, you know, it'll be a little bit more current, so you can celebrate with us. All right, so enjoy. Yeah. Okay, so I guess I'm up first. Seems like I always pick the first holiday, no matter what. Almost. (laughs) Although last time, I guess we kind of mixed up a little and you did it first. But okay, so I have National Drive-Thru Day. I guess there's a little bit of controversy with this. Uh, It was created by the burger chain Jack in the Box. And they kind of wanted to declare themselves as the first uh, fast food chain with the drive-thru. But that's not really true. Is it McDonald's? No, actually, you would think that, but they came along a lot farther. Really? Yeah. So the first one um, was mentioned in a book uh, about Route 66. The author was Michael Wallace, and he talked about a um, hamburger place in Springfield, Missouri, and it was called Red's Giant Hamburg. Not hamburger, but Hamburg. Hamburg, like the they, they actually say that that's supposedly the first drive through um, hamburger restaurant that, um, you know, is in print and that they can discover. But a year later, uh, there was one that opened in Los Angeles. And can you think about what that one might be since you lived out that way? In and Out Burger. In and Out Burger. That actually started with Five Guys, literally. So it's kind of funny that there's like another burger chain called Five Guys. Because supposedly when I was uh, researching this, five guys started it literally in a shack next to kind of a, I guess, a half circular driveway. And that's uh, what they considered a drive through or whatever. But um, but technically, uh, the first one was on Route 66. So, And uh, the interesting thing is, okay, so when I say drive through to you, what do you think about? I think of uh, cars going through a small, like, little road that's been designated to get food <laughs> and have it stuff in their faces while they're driving. And good luck if you're stuck in one of those that, like, it literally only has a drive through lane, right? And you can't get out. And yeah. if you ordered and there's something wrong with it, you just can't get out. Okay, but, um, so my mind would normally go to food, right? Well, yeah, that's what it's for. <laughs> well, I mean, typically, yeah. Okay, but actually, um, it started a lot earlier in the late 1920s, early 30s, 
and not as food. So what are some other drive throughs you can think of? Banking? Yeah. Okay. So that's actually how it started. Okay, yeah. But the first um, banking window, there was a window um, that people could go up to and drive drive through, but it actually did not, it was only for deposits. So, <laughs> but, um, okay, so we think of food, we think of banks, can you think of anything else? Pharmaceuticals? Yeah, there you go. So <laughs> pharmacies, yes. So what you're saying is that the history has not changed much in the field of what drive throughs used to be. Right. So the first drive through was created by Jordan Martin. Um, and like I say, they're the late 20s, early 30s. So most of the things I think I read were like the 30s, but then I read something else like 1928, I think, on that bank or whatever. But... Uh, basically, the concept of a drive-through was um, started by Jordan Martin, but the concept of a drive-through is always the drive-through that you drive up to a window, um, get some kind of service, and then drive off. And uh, so, the interesting thing with this is there are semantics involved. So you have drive-through, uh-huh. but there's drive-in. Okay. Yep. <laughs> and. and- Yes, go ahead. And actually, people really, I guess, got this confused in the early days because uh, because basically a lot of these places kind of started as both a drive-in and then a drive-through. Okay. So they um, had car hops, you know, that would come out to the car, bring right. the food, you'd order from the car, things like that, and they bring it to you. So that was a true drive-in. And when I think of drive-in, I think of movies. Right. You know? Yeah. But technically, like, we had Sonics around and stuff, and that's supposed to kind of, you know, mimic or copy what a drive-in was. But then a lot of them also, because of um, time and stuff, they also had, I guess it was kind of traffic flow too, though, if they had a lot of, you know, people... Uh, waiting backed up they actually had um they created the drive through window or the service window as well they could walk up and mm-hmm. get food yeah. at so uh, the first known drive in was created in 1921 okay and it was uh called the pig stand in texas so um so they were the two drive in but then eventually they started going more to drive throughs or they had both um, going back to who created the day, Jack and Box, Jack in the Box, um, however, was the first resta- restaurant to fully revolve around the drive-thru. Uh, when it opened its first branch in San Diego in the 1950s, it only was a drive-thru location. So they didn't have um, anywhere to really uh, pull over to a parking place to eat or anything like that. They didn't have any way to really go up to it. literally was based around a drive through window. So I guess that's where the controversy kind of comes in. They, you know, they created this day to honor drive throughs and they kind of call themselves the first drive through. But, you know, through history, there were other types of drive throughs, but they were the first ones that I guess really centered just literally on the drive through and didn't offer any other type of service. It's kind of like you have to put a little asterisk around the date being like, hey, we are the first drive through centric drive through I think it's so funny. That's like whenever we do the research, there's always controversies around this. You know, there's controversy around the poor Garfield day that we did. It's like Jim Davis, all this fun stuff. And now we've got drive throughs And why is there controversy on who was the first drive through You know, whoever started it first should be the first one, but... So anyway, going back to the McDonald's, though, um, you would think that it would have been McDonald's, but they actually did not start their first drive-through until 1975. Well, that's kind of when I thought drive-throughs actually started <laughs> because I've seen so much press about like the first drive-through with McDonald's, but like I thought that was the start, you know? Yeah, so, you know, I would have thought the 70s, too. I would have really thought earlier than that, especially since, like, cars, you know, were just kind of getting started in the early 1900s to have a true drive-through back in the, well, a drive-in back in the early 20s and then drive-throughs late 20s or early 30s is pretty amazing. Do you know where the first McDonald's drive-through was actually located? Oh, I should know this, but I do not. Is <laughs> it is it somewhere, like, Midwest? Uh yeah, I guess, well, 
I don't know if you would call it Midwest. It's more West. But here, I would think it would be like a major city, you know, but it isn't. Oh, then. So Sierra Vista, Arizona. Okay. <laughs> I don't, I really didn't research why, you know, yeah. they chose that location, but that's their first location. And then um, because drive throughs got so popular and so many people started going to them, uh, they actually have created two-lane drive throughs now. Of course, the banks have been doing that for a long time. Yeah. But you usually have to sit and wait for a lot of service there where the drive throughs hopefully they're going uh, going quickly, which we'll talk about in a little bit about how accurate and how quick they are. But um, they the first um, known drive through to have two lanes was McDonald's. Oh, okay. And in that case, do you know where it was located? Uh, it has to be something with a lot of heavy, like car traffic. Yeah. Could it be LA? No, which is a good guess because. I guess there's heavy car traffic in here, but I would think of it more like you're saying L.A. or something like that. But the rock and roll McDonald's in Chicago. I mean, hey, yeah, sure. Yeah. Why not? So, um, The other interesting thing is that uh, for the most part, the it's a kind of an American thing. It did definitely start in America, even though there's a controversy of who maybe was the first one, it actually started in America. So it was much later that it actually went overseas. And you and I have seen this quite a bit. When we go overseas, there aren't many fast food places to begin with. You yeah, know, not just no drive throughs but just fast food chains in general are very limited in other countries, especially Europe. Yeah, when, when we usually land and like leave the airport, a lot of times we'll see the things that are popular for the Americans, um, some of the different uh, fast food chains out there. But once we get out of that area, you just don't see, you know, see much. And uh, talking with friends overseas and stuff, it's just kind of like when we talked about the, the storage systems, the storage containers, they don't have storage containers because they just don't keep the extra stuff. And the same thing. Um, they just, you know, tend to eat at home more or eat um, more healthy foods and things like that. And just fast food's not as much into their culture. So the, the fast food um, didn't actually make it overseas until um, McDonald's, of course, <laughs> took their stuff overseas and opened one in Europe in 1985. So pretty... Um, that's a decade, good decade yeah. after, yeah. <laughs> well, a good decade after McDonald's started, but almost uh, almost 50 years. Since regular drive-thrus, yeah. yeah. So, uh, do you know where it opened in Europe? I want to guess Austria, because I know Austria has is where McCafes are, you know, experimented on for the public. So, yeah, Austria. <laughs> no, not in Austria. Um, Italy. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, probably I might think you wouldn't be as much Europe with this country, but Ireland. Okay. Yeah, because I think probably what you're thinking mainland Europe, like I would be thinking yeah. too. Continent. So yeah, so I, I found that interesting. That was that far, you know, down the line. Um, going back to the semantics, it's so funny because they actually have established like a true definition. Okay. Of the difference between them, the drive-through and the drive-in. Um, so let's see. The drive-ins allow you to park, whereas drive-throughs, you pick up your food at the window in your car, then you leave or park in a parking space after receiving the food. Yeah. So I thought it was funny that an actual website kind of had to say the difference between the two. And because there was so, you know, nowadays we kind of, kind of can see the difference and of course like i said what first popped in my head when we talked about drive-ins was a movie theater drive-in which hasn't been in existence in most places for quite a while now even growing up there weren't many drive-ins but that's what popped in my head before i even thought about like sonic and car hops and things like that yeah <laughs> so um i think it's just funny that but back when they were first coming out they had to define it because people were confused between the two. Yeah. So. No, it's interesting how it's ingrained now into our, like, public conscious yeah. that it's that. I mean, like, when we were looking up, you know, holidays to 
due this week, I was looking at National Drive Through Day, but I wasn't thinking about drive through. I was just like drive dash whatever. So I was thinking the in and when I was like reading up a holiday up this holiday, it was saying something like well, drive-ins are, you know, still going on strong and all this. And I'm like, is this supposed to be sarcastic? And it was a drive-through. <laughs> I was like, oh, man, yeah, that totally changes the game here. Yeah. <laughs> so um, talking about drive-ins and movie theaters, I actually, like I said, there weren't that many growing uh, when I was growing up. But um, the I only went to one before it was torn down a couple years later. And I have any idea what I actually saw there? Um, what year would this? Oh goodness! You know what? I don't know. It was, I don't know if it was eighties or nineties, but (laughs) it it'd be two movies that I don't know why. I guess we went because we knew that it was going to be torn down. I never been to one, but they are both sad and depressing movies to me because whenever you go to a drive-in it was always a double feature so you pay Uh for one and you get two of them but anyway well since i know you don't like this film because it's really sad titanic that was one of them that was actually the second one playing of the evening okay and the first one oh it would have been the same era right i don't know what else came out in the 90s what was the The funny thing is i don't think these came out at the same time maybe they did Uh, i don't know anyway lion king oh okay <laughs> so it was a very depressing evening yeah <laughs> go, to the, go to the drive-in to have fun and i get two depressing movies like but, a one-two anyway. punch to the <laughs> feelings but anyway okay so with uh drive-thrus they have actually now done all these studies and a science on drive-thrus and like mentality and things like that restaurants that have drive-thrus 70% of their revenue comes through the drive-thru. Okay. Not through walk-in or anything like that. It's actually through the drive-thru. So that is huge because it's supposed to be like a 200 or $300 billion industry. Mm-hmm. And 70% of it's coming through the drive-thrus. Now that's the United States. Okay. Um, these figures are all United States. And so I've done all this research because of our mentalities of just um, not stopping to eat yeah basically not stopping to eat not we've talked about this before not sitting around the dinner table anymore food isn't a part of our culture like it what you know like is in other societies where you know they'll bake forever and then they'll just sit at the table talking and laughing and you know um, just centering around the food and that just is not our culture anymore we're fast we don't have time for anything um you know people are rushing to get home so they pick up something on the way home um in the bigger cities it's just easier to grab something too when you're right, going we up saw that in yeah. new york and all that <laughs> yeah you just go into like a bodega pick up something and you're out yeah so um because of that they have done all the studies they i did not write down all the studies literally about like what attracts people to certain uh drive-throughs in general but in the science behind it, they did find three things that will keep people coming back to certain drive-throughs. And those three three things, any guesses on them? Uh, location? No, not location. Uh, but I, okay, how about this? Location like off of a highway. So it is close to <laughs> an exit. No, that's actually a good thought, but no. Okay, then. Uh... <laughs> so they had to be quick, accurate, and simple. Okay. They have found that consistently those are the three things that people are looking for. What is simplicity? Like order a number one? Yeah. um, I didn't write down, but they actually said like McDonald's has 80 something things on their menu or something now or whatever. Um, I guess this is probably why like Starbucks and places have hidden menus too. So they probably even have more stuff. But but yeah, the simplicity is... um, you know, have, how simple is the menu? I don't want to go up there and stare at a menu for an hour trying to figure out what I want to eat. I just want to be able to look at it and quickly order it. There were several studies done by several different groups. The one that I was looking at um, in depth was from South Central AV. And 
they pretty much cited the same thing that I was saying across all the studies. And the most uh, accurate, do you have any guesses of which food chain? Um, it has to be something like sort of obscure, right? <laughs> well, maybe. I don't know. Let's go with Arby's. Oh, not Arby's. Okay, then you can tell me because <laughs> I'll go through a full list. And... They are mainstream and they don't open on Sundays. So Chick-fil-A? Yeah, Chick-fil-A. They were coming up consistently as the most accurate, but they're the slowest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but you know what? I think I'd rather be slow and have accurate food, honestly, because I hate it when you get your food and you don't have a chance to check it or whatever, especially if you're by yourself and you can't hand it to someone and say, check yeah. it, and you drive off and you're miles down the road and you realize you don't have it or you get home and you don't have something. So especially straws. So if you are listening to this and you work for a fast food chain, straws. I'm always missing my straws. Or salt and pepper. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, most of them I know you have to ask for, but straws, because I cannot drink my drink in the, in the car without a straw. But anyway, um, and let's see, the fastest? Uh, McDonald's. No. Burger King. <laughs> I'm going to again. Wait, no. Is it In-N-Out? Yeah. No. Redhead. Wendy's. Yeah, Wendy's. So they're the fastest. I feel like they were never really that fast when we would go. I guess it depends maybe on the location. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, they didn't seem faster than others. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the funny thing, too, is when uh, they did all this research and the things that I was researching, it seemed like most of the things were um, definitely hamburger, hamburger chains. Yeah. So they didn't really talk much about some of the some of the others that would not be hamburgers, but I'm sure that they studied them too. They just don't fall into it. So, so did you look up any statistics about Canada's drive-throughs? I did not. I have in my notes about our trip, but you know, I actually didn't look that up because everything I was finding since they originated in the United States were mostly for the United States. But well, yeah. I thought it would be interesting if. You know, you had found anything out because when we first got into Canada and we ended up in Montreal and we're driving between Montreal and Quebec, the city, um, there were fast food restaurants, you know, everywhere. And you could like hit up a Tim Hortons, which we found out is an amazing, <laughs> amazing store. I want a Tim Hortons in Florida. We need our maple <laughs> our maple ice donut yes and you need your vanilla latte i know but, but especially that maple donut that maple donut was everything oh my gosh we had a good maple donut every day <laughs> like you would think that maple is just a stereotype about canada and like you know it wouldn't be anything different from what you can have here no it's different in every single product that they use it is different over there <laughs> So we did find uh, when we first landed and got away from the airport and we're driving up, we landed in Montreal and driving up to Quebec City. We did, uh, once again, we didn't know if we would find any fast food restaurants. And they were kind of newer, uh, not necessarily that the restaurants themselves, the chains were new, but definitely the, the buildings. Yeah, the so. buildings were definitely new. So I guess they're taking off a little bit more there as well off of the highway. Um, but the majority of what we saw were A&Ws. They were very popular up mm -hmm. there. And then, Tim of course, Corbett. the Tim Hortons. Yeah. So we, got, we didn't know Tim Hortons was even a uh, fast food chain at first. So when we got off to possibly visit A&W, we happened to look up Tim Hortons on online and uh, found out it was fast food. I I thought they were a grocery store, I have to admit. Um, but anyway, so we found out that. And uh, for all of our veggie friends out there, we actually learned that uh, Tim Hortons and A&W up there both um, have, was it Beyond? Beyond, Beyond Meat, meat yeah. yeah. And I guess it just happens to be that Beyond Meat has made a lot of partnerships with not only fast food restaurants, but restaurants in general in Quebec, Canada, all over that you can go ahead and get a patty. And it's actually very good. It's very um, 
not veggie burger like you know it's kind of like other times if you get a burger maybe at like burger king or uh i don't even know if wendy's has one but you know if you go somewhere they'll give you a bean patty or something and some things that go on it but whatever they do up there you know it's a different type of patty and it actually comes with all sorts of things on it lettuce tomato onion you know the usual but it's just so filling and good it's amazing i loved it <laughs> and so um that's one thing that we've noticed too with the fast foods in the united states that you know there aren't that many that tend to have a vegetarian option like an alternative meat option of course they have salads and things like that but the um alternative meat is nice we've seen more and more starting that way but it was just kind of cool to see that up at that you know the two major fast food chains up there actually um had had that option um and going back to all these different fast food chains or fast food restaurants and new facilities all that we decided uh to take this kind of obscure road it was a big road you know it connected uh Quebec to Tadoussac and it was you know it was pretty busy and stuff it's more like a two-lane highway kind of deal but <laughs> as we're getting onto the highway um we see a Tim Hortons pass by and we're like oh should we stop in you know get some breakfasts and anything like that and you convinced me that we shouldn't get any right now you know they pop up every once in a while we can grab it again like two hours later yeah we kind of went through the mountains and i didn't realize there wasn't anything in the mountains so two hours later we're starving and we finally <laughs> come up to a tim hortons yeah yeah, I guess it's like gas. I've learned not to, you know, to get gas before we go into an unknown area. But I didn't realize that, you know, Tim Hortons, it's almost at every exit, wasn't in the mountains. There weren't many <laughs> exits in the mountains, to be fair. But yeah. there, there was also the time that I was asleep in the car. And you get your coffee to keep you awake, not for the caffeine, but for the warmth. Are you going to insult my French? You didn't use your French. <laughs> Because he didn't know what to say. So we, she decides to pull up through the drive-thru, which, mind you, we've also been going inside the restaurant. I'll use my French to order because, uh, you know, again, you don't want to always deal with the person at the drive-thru window, especially if they're not paying much attention to what you're saying. So, Well, I can order in French too, but... I have a Southern American accent, so, that so well. you make fun of me all the time. Even if I could speak French, it wouldn't matter. Latte vanille. <laughs> but yeah, so those were all of our drive through trip stories or little anecdotes in Canada this go around. Yeah, and uh, kind of a little side, but since we were driving, uh, there were bunches of signs on the road for wildlife and all, and... Uh, we came across a moose sign. <laughs> is that a moose sign? Yeah, so I kind of had a joke about, uh, is that a moose sign? Because out of the blue, I'm like, is that a moose sign? But um, a lot, so on the highway, we had not been seeing any wildlife, which is good. You know, I don't really want to encounter a deer at, you know, 80 miles an hour, whatever it is, in kilometers per hour. But um, we did see many uh families of animals when we were on smaller roads we even stopped for a really cute family of deer baby i know the poor baby deer did its mom took off and hopped and it didn't know it had to hop over like the median so um but we did on our way back to montreal to uh, drop off the rental car we did finally encounter a deer on the actual highway um i was tired but i did see it and it stopped so that was Definitely an interesting experience for me. We do have deer in our area, but um, and it's kind of rare in our area if they actually hop across the road or anything like that. Um, and I'm not not used to like just pretty much every like we'll see you know the sign up there every ten kilometers, the next ten kilometers deer, then the next ten kilometers moose. And yeah. So um, you know something different that I had to be prepared for. 
And I guess we love the Canadian experience of we didn't see a moose, but we saw the moose sign and Tim Hortons because uh, there is a play called Come From Away. It's a musical that we went to go see in New York, and it takes place in Newfoundland. And they made both jokes related to those things. He mentions Tim Hortons <laughs> being the, you know, every average man kind of daily activity. And then at one point, there's a moose that's in front of the buses that are done in the show. And we're like, cool, we lived through all that. <laughs> I know, I don't think, I think I could have appreciated the moose, but I don't know if I could have appreciated the Tim Hortons. Yeah. If we didn't know about Tim Hortons. Yeah. And then I get um, get back and my husband's like, you know what Tim Hortons was? I'm like, no. But now we do. <laughs> yes, we do. So if you're listening from Canada, uh, we'll we'll send you some money to send us some maple, maple donuts. Leaf. Yeah, mm-hmm. we can get them going back because uh, since we're going to New York in between, they would not have lasted, unfortunately. So, but yeah, love those maple donuts. Yeah. So is there any way that people should be celebrating National <laughs> drive through Day? Go to Tim Hortons and get a maple donut. <laughs> That's what I recommend. Um, well, I mean, obviously, just pick your favorite, you know, fast food chain and go through the drive through Okay. Um, maybe start up your own drive through on something that isn't a drive through yet. And does that have to be food? So there's, you know, there's also photo drive throughs there's post office drive-thrus. Oh, photo drive-thrus where you get the film developed and it's given to you? Yeah. <laughs> Not like they take photos no, no. of you. Oh, but hey, you could go get married at the drive-thru chapel in, in Vegas. Vegas. Yeah. yeah, there you go. With an Elvis so- beside yeah. you as a priest. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so you have a lot of options there. Well, there you go. Maybe maybe not the last one, though. (laughs) Or at least make sure you're good and sober if you choose that last one. Yeah, make sure you talked with your partner (laughs) (laughs) that you really want to do this elopement (laughs) right then and there. So anyway, so uh, yeah, a lot of things. But if you do actually design your own drive-thru and it's close enough to us, we'll come visit it. Yeah. All right. So and now it is time for National Day of the Cowboy, which is on July 27th this year and is a day to celebrate an everyday kind of hero, one that has had two centuries worth of heritage to it. And I mean like two centuries from now and kind of like late 1800s, even before then, but a lot of the ideas and images that we get of the cowboy come from after the civil war i actually consulted with my dad about this because he's into the wild west and all that and so some of the reasons why cowboys became popular during this time was after the civil war many of the soldiers who were voluntarily soldiers um you know were out of a job so they were trying to look for something new But there was also a crisis in the North specifically, but also affecting the South as well. There were a bunch of cattle that, you know, had been used up for the Civil War to feed the soldiers. And now you could pay about $40 for a head of cattle, you know, cow in the North versus $4 in Texas, you know, for one cow. So... What happened was there's a big migration out to the west who basically herd thousands and thousands of cows up north to sell for the meat industry. And honestly, that's kind of the history about cowboys. There isn't much more. You know, you can talk about the lifestyle and you can go a little bit more into the historical details of like their clothing and how they lived and even maybe like proto civil war or post proto post civil war cowboys um but i decided to look more into cowboys and film so uh, we're going to be actually talking about three different eras in the western filmmaking genre and not all western films are of course about cowboys um but 
it certainly grew out of what would be Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, which was based on cowboy life. So, do you know much about Buffalo Bill, Mom? Oh, no, not a lot. <laughs> well, I didn't really... I thought Buffalo Bill was more myth than reality, but Buffalo Bill was actually a very big player in the Wild West, in the frontier. So he first got started in the Pony Express, and uh, I think he must have done this when he was younger, maybe like late teenage years. Um, after doing the Pony Express for a while, he actually volunteered for to fight in the American Civil War, and uh, later he would actually come to work for a railroad company. And this railroad crum- company... Again, you also have this, again, Western migration outward um, just during this entire period because of, you know, political um, purchases such as the Louisiana Purchase and uh, Manifest Destiny, you know, would be coming about. And so uh, as the railroads were being laid to connect to California and other Western states, they needed to supply, again, meat to their staff. So Buffalo Bill was hired as a, one of these employees to go out and hunt buffalo. So when he um, actually was hunting buffalo, just to show kind of the adventurous spirit of Buffalo Bill, and this is where he gets his name from, is that he's known to have shot down 11 buffalo with 12 shots from a rifle. That's sad. It's sad, but it is really impressive (laughs) given the fact that, like, these guys can take a lot of shots, right? A lot of the information coming from Buffalo Bill's uh, history that I'm chronicling here is actually from a YouTube video is from Overly Sarcastic Productions History Summarized Buffalo Builds Wild West video. Um, So, again, he is known for taking down these buffalo, and he would do it in a very mighty way. He actually would, instead of, like, other buffalo hunters who would stand back and try to shoot, you know, hide behind cover and all that, Um, Buffalo Bill would actually get on his horse and ride through the buffalo herds and take them out while he's in between them. Um, He's also known to have killed around 4,000 buffalo in roughly 12 months, something like that. Poor buffalo. I know, it's sad. But at least it was, you know, feeding people and not just for game, from what I can tell. Uh, and so he would be so skilled at riding a horse, eventually he would become a civilian leader in the U.S. Army out in the frontier area, and uh, eventually a lot of his uh, very fabulous adventures, exploits, would be written down in dime novels. And sometimes the dime novels also would exaggerate the stories themselves by adding something in here and there. But overall, they actually did follow his stories, and it just happens to be that Buffalo Bill was a very eccentric kind of character. So he had this, you know, great life, and great by meaning like very grandiose and all that, that he would come to build a troop that would later be known as Buffalo Bill's Wild West Show. And they would have people such as Annie Oakley in it, but they would go ahead and try to show the way uh, of life for the cowboy. Um, And it's interesting conversation because he would also show other elements to uh, the Wild West that were not just cowboy related. He would show Indians and how they would live out their daily lives, which were actually pretty accurate. He would actually get Indians to act in these parts and show their religion and show, you know, like building structures and actually really let them have a platform 
to show that they weren't, you know, savages as a lot of America thought of them at this time. Um, among other uh, events as well, like stagecoaches, wagon life, all that. But when it came to Buffalo Bill, because he was such an atypical cowboy, you know, he was showing off his lifestyle, but that was not the lifestyle of most cowherders at this point. So you kind of get this weird conflation of Buffalo Bill's cowboy versus the real cowboy. And it only, you know, gets strengthened as um, the dime novels keep getting produced and the Wild West show keeps going on tour. It actually is a global phenomenon. And it's not only America that sees cowboys this way, but it starts to go into Europe and Eurasia and everywhere else. So then what comes next is that the American Western film genre in silent film industry. And the reason why American Western film was being used was because it already had a recognizable set of images from these dime novels, the Wild West show, people knew who Buffalo Bill was. So even though if it wasn't specifically Buffalo Bill, people knew what cowboys, you know, cowboys <laughs> with quotations, imaginary quotations around it, um, to make these films that also required a lot of, you know, they have title cards, and then they have the actual motion picture. And it was much simpler to go with films that could produce big action shots. Um, not only that, but they could also um, display moralistic characters in the different uh, shots that are produced, whether it is a lot of violence that is going on or uh, making a bandit look like a bandit everybody knows already what it looks like from the dime novels and such and uh, you can color code your characters black and white for like their hats so a white character uh you know white hat on a character is obviously good, good yeah. and the black is bad and they're very when you're watching the show they're very uh obvious almost stereotypical yes of course stereotypical because it needs to convey the message of what's going on in the film so these were kind of the first westerns and how they were born then right these were exactly the first westerns and they were actually some of the first films in the silent industry oh wow the 1903 film the great train robbery is actually known as one of the first American films to feature a long-running narrative in it. So they uh, didn't focus in on one scene and work from there. They actually got multiple scenes. Uh, I think they also did indoor-outdoor scenes. But altogether, they uh, compiled it to make segmented <clears throat> episodes, perhaps. Uh, you know what I mean? But actually... And culminates into one yeah. where you have a start a middle and an end um which it seems like with others they were more focused on clips and episodic films that didn't include all these different scenes that one was that would not have been talky era so that was still a silent film yes 1903 was still yeah. silent era and uh, really the western genre in silent film industry was probably the biggest one in the silent era because again of these reasons of there's recognizable imagery and it's easy to convey the message you want to get across and people can just watch the action go on and they can enjoy it too when it came to me just looking up anything about western films I found out that the historical uh, accuracy has not really been an issue because people don't really care about it. <laughs> and so I thought it was just 
we'll get into this later, but kind of more just understood as, you know, these can be historically inaccurate. But it turns out that when these silent films were being produced, there was kind of an embattled question of should it be historically accurate or should it not be? And so you get people such as William S. Hart, which was a leading man in many of his own films, but he's a director who really wanted to put authentic attention on historical accounts. So he tried to, you know, get this idea of gritty realism going. And this comes from True West magazine, gritty realism. Uh, he would pay attention to the costumes and the storylines, and he would actually get people from frontier history to who were still alive to come and participate with him. Um, Tom Mix, however, is a real cowboy who turned director and actor, and he didn't like to show what the frontier life was. He actually really tried to make it very heroic, but more fantastic and more like Buffalo Bill than like a real cowboy Western life. Is that because it really was kind of just boring? I don't necessarily know if it was boring. I think it was more along the lines of it was amoral. So, of course, Wild West was very uh, outlaw. (laughs) (laughs) And you got your showgirls and all that and brothels and things like that. Right. So I don't think he really wanted to portray that image because while these films were being produced... The Wild West was still going on. The frontier still had outlaws. So he didn't necessarily want to, and this is just me conjecturing, but from what I was researching, he didn't want there to be everybody from the West to be bad, essentially. And he really liked to take up this idea of the good guy. So, of course, this was, again, during the 1920s and all that, and this was going down. Um, And uh, a lot of uh, film production companies, there we go, (laughs) I couldn't think of the word, um, were producing big-budget films, but then they started going to more of a B-movie status because they didn't want to keep funneling money in. And this was after the Depression era. So by 1930s, with just companies wanting to put in cheap money into cheap films. They also kept repeating different tropes, and it didn't really get people in to see the films anymore. They weren't coming in to see train robberies, big gunfights. They didn't really go for this also one-note character that was in all the films. Again, you have white color cladded character who's good you got black color cladded character who's bad that's kind of it so enter in john ford you know famous director american director who uh, is uh, uh credited with starting up the classic western era these are where most of the films that you probably know about the west or have heard in passing um come from So what he did was he presented new stylistic options in a lot of cinematography of Western genre, but maybe perhaps the biggest one was complex psychological profiles for his characters. And so a lot of people point to 1939's Stagecoach as being the film to start this off. Um, I was actually watching it today because I wanted to see what the hype was all about. And it was actually a really good film. It kind of, when it got into the action scene between the people in the stagecoach and the Indians, I didn't really like it because it kind of bored me. (laughs) The people who were playing the Indians, actually, when they would like fall off the horses after getting grazed by a shot it was just like so unrealistic that it (laughs) took me out of it because otherwise it was a very grounded film and you get invested in the characters i'm sure at the time though it probably was very ahead of its time and 
that is something that's very interesting. We might think of John Ford as being old, you know, <laughs> kind of outdated. But during his time, he was very progressive in his films, um, both in a liberal sense, but also just in what film could do. And so a lot of people will point to, like, he, his scenes were very efficient and inexpensive. Um, and we'll talk about this in a second, too, when it comes to spaghetti westerns and how they uh, flip that on its head. Okay. But some of the things that kind of uh, classify a classic era, western era film is there are gl- clean-shaven characters, their clothes are hardly ever dirty, um, a lot of the morals are imbued into symbolic relationships and actions. So, such as violence. Violence is what characterizes a character as being evil in these films. Um, which makes sense, right? But it doesn't make sense when you get into later films with spaghetti westerns where violence is just so rampant that it, it is not a moral question while it is in John Ford's films. Um, there's also not much of the violence that's there, and even to an interesting kind of characteristic about his uh, personas in these films are that violence is a civilized violence. It is a violence that can be justified and actually leads to law and order. Um, There's also an idea of invented truth when it comes to these films where there's, again, not much historical accuracy going on. And you can kind of, like, argue that there is and that there isn't. It seems that throughout the entire history of Western films, they kind of cherry-pick what they want to be true, and then they throw away the rest. Um, But there's always seems to be the sense of you can change the way that history was by letting yourself decide on what should be historic or not. Um, I know there are some films where there are famous quotes of him specifically talking on, you know, parts of saying like, hey, uh, this, there's a specific film where a guy is talking with a newspaper journalist and the journalist says, well, now that we know that this isn't true or whatever, do you want us to go with your story? And he says, at this point, it's legend. And whatever is legend in the West is fact. So I thought that was kind of interesting. So it kind of shows how even media way back then could control events and what people watched. Oh, yeah, definitely. And that's not just the newspaper (laughs) journalists, but this is also the talk about the films being produced and shown to the masses. Um, So John Ford, he started this cycle of adult psychologically invested films that would go from the 40s and 50s. And this is when you would start to see films that won Oscars, such as High Noon. Um, It's actually the actor who won it. I think it was Henry Fonda in High Noon. I don't know. I know you don't know Western films. I know. That is not one genre that I've actually gotten into. I mean, I've watched a lot. uh, Not a lot. I've watched it, but not a lot. Um, I think probably I've watched more TV shows than I have movies. But it's just because they're kind of like they're on. on. Yeah. yeah. Well, so. no. And like, even before I looked up all this information, I was not interested in Western films at all. I'm like, y- you know what goes on in a Western film. But that's what kind of got me more interested in looking up this project, this research, is that why do we know these things? Why are they so embedded in our minds of what a Western genre is when there's a lot of nuance that goes on outside of those tropes. It's like you see one or two films that are Western, and then you've seen them all. So I don't know if Western films necessarily would have survived after 
these classic films um, if it weren't for the spaghetti western. But we are talking about the Italians this time. And we are talking about the Sergio, well, I'm calling the Sergio Leone's era, which maybe can fall under the three Sergios era because you have Sergio Leone, you have Sergio Corpucci, and you have Sergio um, Salame? Sal- Salami or something like that. Um, but they were probably the three really innovative makers of Western film during the 60s and 70s. And the reason why it's called Spaghetti Western is because they are all Italian. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which doesn't mean that all the films that were produced during this era were Italian. This is more of a generalized term for Euro uh, Western films. So Europe got really big into making these Western films after World War II because uh, they started to... There are a lot of different factors. For one, they were looking at anti-capitalism, so there was a lot of socialist propaganda and ideas. More so ideas, not necessarily propaganda, because you would have to be like, we need to push this on you. But as um, one of the authors I was reading in an essay mentioned that they were political, but they weren't doctrinal, doctrinate. So they weren't trying to push anything on you. They were more like trying to explore ideas about capitalism in these films. Um, And it might be kind of weird to think that, you know, Italy would make Western films or Spain or Germany. Um, But it actually makes a lot of sense in the course of filmography's history in uh, Europe. And that's because actually during, prior to World War II, American films were being distributed by Hollywood, you know, big moneymaker, all that. Um, So, of course, they were being being pushed out to European audiences as well. When it came to World War II in Italy, Mussolini's regime um, actually kind of encouraged, uh, or at least didn't like, impose any regulations necessarily on western films that were coming in but american western but western films in general um and a lot of it was because american western films were being used as propaganda for mussolini's regime they saw uh fascist ideology (laughs) in the classic films and they were being used to allow that idea and kind of perpetuate the idea that Italians should be taking over Ethiopia, which was their colony at the time, but Ethiopia was kind of fighting back and so they're like, we need to charge in and still keep control of our land and we have to make the savages good and all that and whatever. So Mussolini actually was kind of a his regime was kind of a big, you know, fan of American Western film. So there was actually a lot of American Western uh, imagery in Italy and Europe, but Italy at this time. So when it came to uh, post-war, World War II, that's when, again, there was this idea of kind of brokenness in Europe and a lot of people were trying to figure out what do you do with violence and chaos and everything that went through World War II. And there was still violence and chaos in post-World War II. Italy was broken up into different states. They don't reform until, and this might be completely wrong too, so I'm sorry if you're into Italian history and all that, but around the 1970s and 80s, when you have the Resurgimento, the resurgement and you kind of have this difference between north and south italy where north is industrial and rich and south is poor marginalized uh farm workers and all that so it really fit into this uh, idea of socialism and communism whatnot but 
let's talk about the film that I also watched today for the Spaghetti Westerns, which is A Fistful of Dollars. It was released in 1964 in Europe and would be later distributed in the USA in 1967. Um, it is kind of where Clint Eastwood got his really big start in Western films and just as a film actor, because before that he was in Rawhide and he was a very good character. Um, and in The Fistful of Dollars, he's not a very good character, which is something that comes up in all spaghetti western films this is the era and reign of the anti-hero so with john ford you have john wayne who is very heroic very moral character but for spaghetti westerns they're like we don't need morality because we're not talking about what's good and what's bad we're necessarily we're kind of more just again experimenting with what happens if everybody is just after money or something to that effect so like in a fistful of dollars clint eastwood's character is coming into this town that is ruled by two different gangs and he essentially just pits the two gangs together huge bloodshed lots of violent actions occur and by the end both gangs are you know killed off essentially and Clint Eastwood comes out with having some money not a lot but he did all this for money um, and going with the idea that everything is morally ambivalent again violence just exists in this kind of setting um, and whereas John Ford would use violence to characterize an evil character uh, with violence being rampant in all these spaghetti westerns, you can't judge a person's character's morals morals by the violent actions that they do. Um, I thought this was super interesting when I was looking watching A Fistful of Dollars. I'm like, their voices don't necessarily match their lips, right? Um, but I'm like, like Clint Eastwood does like he, and i know clint eastwood does not speak italian he has gone on record to say he does not speak italian but i'm like okay so his kind of sync up but then none of the other characters really sync up and that's because when a fistful of dollars was being produced it was specifically a german italian and spanish produced film where they would hire german italian spanish actors it seems that Clint Eastwood's probably the only English speaker actually in this film. But you're like, okay, so how does that work? First of all, I'm listening to English everywhere else. So, of course, they dubbed English onto all the others. But they did that with the Italian version and dubbed Clint Eastwood's Italian. But nobody's mouths really match up with anybody else's mouths and audio so there's no true original intended language with this film because they just had if you were a spanish actor you would speak in spanish if you were an italian actor you would speak in english or italian i mean english english so it's kind of interesting because it's like they still have very correct reactions to everything that's going on but none of them understood what was being said by the other character. Oh, that's very weird. And it actually led to kind of troublesome issues for Clint Eastwood when it came to trying to get direction from Sergio Leone, the director, Italian director, because they didn't even have an interpreter. <laughs> so there was an unofficial interpreter. He was a stunt man, and he would try to translate what the directions were to Clint Eastwood, but it was never perfect, right? So I, it's kind of amazing to me that you would have such an, a film that requires so much like communication with each other because of all these different uh, nationalities and all that, but they didn't really have anybody to help out that translation process um 
just to kind of like also finish up about the spaghetti westerns we're coming to an end here they didn't last very long they lasted maybe less than a decade from what it looks like and he kind of got like neo spaghetti westerns as well like Django Unchained is definitely a neo spaghetti western it is an homage to the other Django's and to other films of that genre so that's my uh, so how would you celebrate it then? I would recommend by watching a bunch of old westerns. They're, again, not all cowboys, and they're very normal people in the spaghetti westerns that just turn violent. <laughs> um, if it, you want to follow this history of western films, I guess you can do as I did, you know, watch Stagecoach, which is the big one for starting the classic era probably the next one you could watch after that is either the searchers or high noon uh searchers was another film by john ford and it was critically panned by you know people of his time but now is revered as being probably the top western film um high noon i don't know much more other than it has henry fonda and he won an oscar for it um when it comes to spaghetti western films you have Sergio Leone's uh, Fistful of Dollars trilogy so you can start off with the first one Fistful of Dollars but it also the third one in that trilogy is the good the bad and the ugly those probably would be the ones for spaghetti western and I don't know exactly for silent film other than the great train robbery but I don't know if you want to actually use that as the first film of the silent films to watch because it was the one to start this all off. So maybe pick one that's a little bit more well-known in there. Yeah, but, you know, seeing the original, original is pretty cool too. But, like, if it's not good, <laughs> I haven't seen anybody say it wasn't good. I haven't seen anybody that said it was good. It was kind of just well, historical. They can put it in the chat and comments if they like it, if they watch it. Not sure. You guys can do that. But <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week. Yeah, wrapped it up with just two, but we'll be coming to you next week with two more. Yes, we will be doing that. So thank you guys for joining us again. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us in our hop through these silly and strange celebrations. We'll be back again with another assortment of holidays to inspire new traditions. You can follow us at Don't Tell the Easter Bunny on Facebook and Instagram, or Don't Tell the EAS1 on Twitter. And for emails, you can use Don't Tell the Easter Bunny at gmail.com. See, See you, you next time! time.